0: Here we go. Let's read through the text together, and then we'll ask God's blessing. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women, came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified, and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb, and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home marveling at what had happened our father we ask for your blessing upon the teaching of your word we pray that the truth the powerful truth of the resurrection of jesus christ would make a powerful impact on our lives today may it dispel doubt and may it bring fruit to your glory in jesus name amen If someone is able to successfully dislodge the foundation stone of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the whole building of Christianity is going to come tumbling down. That's how important the doctrine of the resurrection is. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, there is no Christianity. In fact, let me just read to you what the Apostle Paul says about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 through 19. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So do you hear what he's saying? If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, every one of you are still in your sins your sins are not forgiven, and you're headed for an eternity in hell. And you're of all men most to be pitied because you believe this delusion your whole life. You have these high hopes on an eternity, and they're all going to be dashed if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Christian author Michael Green, in his book Man Alive, wrote these words, quote, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out with his execution. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once disprove it, and you have disposed of Christianity. Church historian Philip Schaff wrote these words, The resurrection of Christ is therefore emphatically a test question upon which depends the truth or falsehood of the Christian religion. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. I love that last statement. It's so true. The resurrection is either the greatest miracle or it's the greatest delusion which history records. This morning what I want to do is look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ with you today. And I'm going to... This message is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be an apologetics type of message. Now when you say when I say apologetics, you're probably thinking I'm going to be apologizing a lot. <laughs> We're telling you I'm sorry for this and for that. <laughs> That's not what apologetics is all about. Apologetics means it's a defense of the faith. You're giving reasons, proof of truths that you hold essential and hold dear. So what I want to do is give you evidence to buttress the faith of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then when we're done doing that, I hope to draw out some very powerful applications that arise out of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at three lines of thought. First of all, the fact of the empty tomb secondly the skeptics explanation of the empty tomb and then the divine explanation of the empty tomb okay so first of all very important we need to look at the fact of the empty tomb our first three verses here in Luke 24 says that these women went very early on the first day of the week they were bringing spices and it says when they entered they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus the The stone had been rolled away, they looked inside, and there wasn't anything there. The body was gone. So the tomb was empty. All of the Gospels record this, that the tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. Now, there has never been any serious question among scholars as to whether the tomb was empty. Because the early Christians could not have made thousands of converts if all those people had to do was just to walk over to the empty tomb, roll away the stone, and look inside for themselves, right? How could they win their converts by preaching the resurrection if all they had to do is just go check out the tomb? So that's why there's never been any serious doubt as to whether the tomb was empty. And in addition to that, if the tomb was not empty, why wouldn't, The early Christian, or not, the early, the early Jewish leaders who hated the early Christians and wanted to stamp out the sect, why wouldn't they have just gone to the tomb, gotten the body, paraded it through the streets of Jerusalem, and dispelled of this new Christian sect that way? Instead, what do they do? They threaten them, they beat them, they flog them, they imprison them, and they even killed them. It'd be so much easier just to bring out the body. All doubt as to whether uh, Jesus was raised would be gone. So, the fact of the empty tomb. Now, there are some skeptics that do believe that the tomb um, was not empty. They believe that Jesus' body was there, and they've come up with some explanations for that. One of the explanations that they've come up with is called the hallucination theory. Have you ever heard of this theory before? The the body was there, but they hallucinated. They didn't see the body. They saw Jesus come alive. So let's just follow this train of thought out. They thought they saw the risen Christ when in fact he was actually dead and in the tomb, but they were hallucinating. Now, those who study hallucinations tell us that a hallucination generally requires an anticipating spirit of hopeful expectancy. It needs to be somebody who wants this thing to happen, who expects it to happen, or who is anticipating something to happen. They're the kinds of people, generally, that have these hallucinations. Scholar Paul Little, who's assistant professor of evangelism at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, he's written this. In order to have an experience like this, one must so intensely want to believe that he projects something that really isn't there and attaches reality to his imagination. So do you get the, the picture? You've got to so intensely want this that your wishes became father, become father to the actual thought and produces something in your mind that really did not happen. Now, let's ask ourselves this question. Did the disciples have this anticipating spirit of hopeful expectation that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. What does the Bible say? No, absolutely not. Look back at Luke 18, verse 33. Jesus says in verse 33 that after they have scourged him, that is Christ, they will kill him, and the third day he'll rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. In other words, they just didn't get it. And this isn't the only time he said things like that. He made the statement many times over about the last six months of his life. But they never could understand him. They never got it. Here we find the disciples. Look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So we don't have a bunch of disciples here that want desperately to believe in the resurrection. When the women come back and say that the tomb is empty and that he's risen, they wouldn't believe it. They thought she had some some crazy dream or something. This is nonsense. In fact, the early disciples were forced to believe against their wills. It's not that they wanted to believe all their hopes were dashed. They didn't expect anything at this time. Also, hallucinations usually don't occur to more than one person at the same time. Right? Well, we've got 11 disciples. Well, first time, uh, Easter evening, 10 of those disciples were there. Thomas was gone, but Jesus appears to 10 at the same time. A week later, Jesus appears to 11 at the same time. And in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6, it says that he appeared to more than 500 at the same time. Were all of those people having the same hallucination just coincidentally? You wonder? Also, the disciples touched Jesus, they physically handled him, and they watched him eat a piece of fish. This is the kind of thing you don't expect to happen in a hallucination. You're not able to touch and handle and physically grab onto your hallucination. But they did that with Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, the British author, says, Any theory of hallucination breaks down on the fact that on three separate occasions, this hallucination was not immediately recognized as Jesus. Remember those three? On the, the road to Emmaus? At first, they didn't understand that this was Jesus walking alongside those two disciples. And then later, Mary Magdalene, she didn't recognize Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. And then at the Sea of Galilee, the seven disciples there, they were out in the boat. And at at first, they didn't know it was Jesus on the shore. Later, they figured it out. So if they were having hallucinations, they would have immediately thought that it was Jesus because that's what they want to think is going to happen. And again... Another, another thing that we need to consider is that the Jewish leaders, if this was just a hallucination, all they have to do is wheel out the corpse and show all the people. Bye-bye hallucinations, you know, that don't stand up. So that's the first theory. The tomb, they say, was not empty. The body was there, but they just hallucinated about it. The second one is the wrong tomb theory. The tomb was not empty, the body was there, but everybody went to the wrong one. If they had just gone to the right tomb, they would have seen the body of Jesus all along. Well, what do we say about the wrong tomb theory? Um, Let's think about this. 36 hours before, all of those women saw where Jesus was laid. It tells us that at the end of Luke chapter 23. They were all there, they saw it. Within 36 hours, did they all forget? I mean... Maybe one was a little scatterbrained, but are all these women (laughs) going to go to the wrong tomb? Not only that, but Mark 16 and verse 6 says that a young man was sitting at the right wearing a white robe. This is an angel describing the resurrection. And they were amazed. And this angel says, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. So is the angel wrong? Did the angel make a mistake? He thought that that was the place where they laid the body of Jesus. He had to have been wrong if they went to the wrong tomb, right? Also, you've got Peter and John both running to the very same tomb. Did they make a mistake? And if all of them made the same mistake, wouldn't the owner of the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, have known where... I mean, he bought it. He's got to know where it's at. He can set everybody else straight if they're all confused about this. So the wrong tomb theory doesn't hold up under scrutiny. The hallucination theory doesn't hold up under scrutiny. There is plenty of evidence that the disciples were not hallucinating and the location of the tomb was never in question. The empty tomb is a fact so how do we account for the fact of the empty tomb well let's go secondly and talk about the skeptics explanation for the empty tomb they believe the tomb was empty but they have their own theories to come up with that the first one is the the swoon theory and this this theory says yes the body was gone on easter morning but the body left on its own power it's not that Jesus rose from the dead, but that Jesus never died. He just fainted. He became unconscious, and he revived there in the tomb, and he left. So that's what happened. The swoon theory. He just swooned. Okay, so we need to ask ourselves a few questions. First of all, did Jesus really die or not? In John 19.32-34, well, I'll just tell you, you've read this many times, They were going to break the legs of all of the people up on the crosses. They broke the one on Jesus' left and the one on his right. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And so rather than breaking his legs, they took a spear and they thrust it into his side. And John says, the blood and water came out. That's strong medical proof that he had already died. Otherwise, this this kind of uh, blood and water coming out of his side would not have happened. You'd have the pulsating every time the heart beat gushes of blood coming forth from his side but that's not what they saw um also Pilate asked the centurion to verify whether he were dead or not the centurion came back and said yes he's dead if there's anybody who is an expert at knowing when people were dead it was a centurion because his job every day his job was to execute people to crucify people he had to know when they were dead he had to know when they were alive he said he's dead Also, you've got the women and Joseph of Arimathea who loved Jesus. And if there was any possibility that he was not dead, they wouldn't have gone through with putting him in this airtight tomb. Also, a man is not revived by wrapping him up in a 100 pounds of spices and shutting him up in an airtight tomb. That's going to kill the guy rather than revive him. And this would mean that Jesus would appear to his disciples after not having his wounds dressed, not eaten or drank for three days, He moves the stone three women felt incapable of moving. Then he fights off the Roman soldiers single-handedly, trained soldiers. Then he walks seven miles on pierced feet to Emmaus. And then he lives in hiding for 40 days, making these occasional appearances. And then he lives out the rest of his life, never appearing to a single solitary soul forever. That's what we have to buy if we're going to believe the swoon theory. I'm sorry. I just don't have enough faith to believe this theory. (laughs) (laughs) It's silly. It is silly. Now, there's other people that believe that the tomb was empty, but they have a different theory. It's the stolen body theory. The stolen body theory. Somebody stole the body. That's why it was gone. It was stolen. Well, there's only really three options here. You've got either the Romans stole the body, the Jewish leader stole the body, or the disciples stole the body. First of all, the Romans. If you look back at Matthew 27 we're going to notice that the Romans were really in charge of making sure that the body stayed in the tomb. (laughs) That's what they wanted. Look at um, verse 62 of of Matthew 27. It says that on the next day, the, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, Give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard? Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, seal was, they would put this, Usually, if it was an envelope, they put wax on it. It was a way of putting something on the stone with the imprint of the uh, the uh Roman government so that if anybody broke that seal and moved the stone, they would incur the wrath of the Romans. So they put a guard between four and 16 soldiers to guard this tomb. So let's just ask ourselves a question... Did the Romans steal the body? Would the, did the Romans have any motive to steal the body of Jesus? Would there be any reason they would want to steal the body? This is exactly what they would not want to do. Because their job was to make sure the body stayed there. If they moved it, they're, they're working at cross purposes with themselves. All the Romans wanted was peace. And if suddenly they took the body, they're going to be stirring up a hornet's nest between the Jews and the, the Christians. So that's not what they want. They just want peace. They just want to make sure the body stays there. Well, what about the Jewish leaders? I wonder if the Jewish leaders stole the body. Well, again, what would their motive be? If they took the body, uh, they would be actually perpetrating the Christian's resurrection story. The very thing they didn't want to happen. (laughs) So if they took the body, then the Christians could say, hey, he's risen from the dead. They didn't want any resurrection story. And so they were anxious that that would not happen. And also, if the Jews did steal the body, later on when the Christians start to preach the resurrection, all they have to do is wheel the body into the streets and show everybody, here it is, bye-bye resurrection story. Well, what about the disciples? This is what the Jews actually said. It was the disciples that stole the body. In Matthew 28, you can read about that. They, they told the soldiers, just say the disciples stole the body and we'll cover this whole thing up. We'll keep you out of trouble. Well, if it was the disciples, it's interesting that they were never arrested for that crime, which is inexplicable unless they were not guilty of the crime. Um, also, why did Peter and John run to the tomb if they had already stolen the body? and they knew where the body was. Are they just play-acting, running to the tomb? Also, John 20, verse 19, says that they were fearful of the Jews. You've got these timid, fearful disciples. Do we really believe that these fearful disciples attacked and overpowered a trained, deadly, disciplined Roman guard? I mean, does that make any sense? Well, you say, well, they didn't do that. They just waited till they all went to sleep, and they stole the body then. Do you know what the penalty was if a Roman soldier went to sleep on the job? Yes. Death. They're not likely going to go to sleep. And even if they did, the sound of moving that heavy stone away from the entrance is going to wake them all up anyway. And even if it didn't, <laughs> I'm just piling one on top of the other. It says over in John chapter 20 that the linen wrappings were removed and rolled up and set, set there as though somebody... Um, had deliberately taken off the wrappings and rolled them up and set them in a certain place. Now, if you're a grave robber, are you going to take the time to unwind? I mean, first of all, you wouldn't want to carry this body. It's three days old by now. You're going to want to keep the linen wrappings on. And even if you did take them off, you would just throw them in a corner and run. That's not what the evidence suggests when you find the linen wrappings in the tomb. Not at all. And then finally, 10 of the 11 apostles died as martyrs for preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, a man may die for what he believes is the truth, but he's not going to die for what he knows to be a lie. Deceivers and martyrs are not made of the same stuff. It doesn't hold water. The stolen body theory doesn't add up. The swoon theory doesn't add up. So... There's the skeptic's explanation. Let's look at the divine explanation. What does God say happened? We know what people trying to cover it up say. What does God say? Well, let's look first of all at the testimony of the angels. In Luke 24, the angels give an explanation of what exactly happened. Starting in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Now an angel is a messenger from God. His job is to deliver messages from God. I think we can safely assume that what the angel said on that day is the word of God. It's what God wanted to deliver to the people on that particular occasion. God's divine explanation. It's not that the body swooned. It's not that the body was stolen. It's not that the disciples had hallucinations. What happened is that Jesus rose. That's God's explanation. Now, if we're in any doubt as to who these two people are, verse 23 says that they were angels. So these are angels delivering God's message about the resurrection. Not only do we have the testimony of the angels, we also have the predictions of Jesus. Because this angel goes on to say, Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? So this angel is is telling them, Remember back. Remember when he was still alive. On several occasions, he was telling you what was going to happen. He told you that he was going to die, and he told you that he was going to rise again. Now, just go back with me to Luke chapter 9 for just a second. Here, Luke 9, verse uh, 22. Jesus told his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. What are the facts that he delivers? The Son of Man is going to be rejected by the religious leaders. He's going to be killed. He's going to be raised up. Now, if you go over to Luke 18, as the time gets closer, Jesus' details become more minute, more graphic, more descriptive. Luke 18, verse 32 Jesus says, therefore, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. That's new information. He didn't tell them that before. And he's going to be mocked, mistreated, and spit upon. All that's new information, new details that weren't given before. And after they've scourged him, there's another new detail. He didn't talk about the scourging before. They'll kill him. And the third day, he's going to rise again. So several times over the last few months, Jesus kept telling him. This is going to happen. And he kept adding details as the time gets got closer. So these predictions were very minute, very graphic, very detailed. And Jesus told them very clearly, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. And if those two things aren't enough, the testimony of the angels and the predictions of Jesus, we've also got the testimony of eyewitnesses that saw him alive. I'm not going to turn to all these verses, but if you want them, I'll I'll list where they're at. Mary Magdalene saw Jesus risen from the dead. John 20, verse 14. Then the women who were returning from the tomb on Easter morning. In Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10, it says that Jesus appeared to them and greeted them. In Luke 24, verse 34, it says Jesus appeared to Peter. In Luke 24, verses 13 to 33, it says that he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then when those disciples got back to Jerusalem, it says that Jesus appeared to the eleven with Thomas absent in Luke 24, 36 to 43. Then, a week later, he appeared to the eleven with Thomas present in John 20, verses 26 to 29. Then he appeared to seven disciples on the Lake of Galilee in John 21, verses 1 to 23. Then we read in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to 500 believers at one time. Most of them were still alive at the time Paul wrote that letter. So anybody could have interviewed any one of those 500 men if they had any doubts about the resurrection. He appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 15:7. He appeared to the 11 when he gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28:16 to 20. And then He appeared to those disciples who were present at His ascension when He ascended back to heaven. I mean, you've got time after time after time after time with this group and that group and that individual and that individual appearing, appearing, appearing. There ought to be no doubt. If you can believe that these disciples were credible eyewitnesses and I see nothing in the gospel accounts that lead me that they were perpetrating lies. If they were, I don't think they would have gone on to peter to be crucified upside down or for james to be thrown off the temple and beaten to death or all to go to their deaths for some crazy lie what motive would they have if jesus were dead why why would they perpetrate the lie just go back to your fishing business so the divine explanation is in my mind far more credible, even though it requires belief in the supernatural, than the skeptics' explanations. I can't see any validity. And I've I've tried. I've tried to look honestly and objectively at their theories, but they just don't hold any water. Now, so what, right? Why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? And this is the part that I really wanted to get to, because this is the good stuff here. Let me ask you some other questions. How do we know that the Bible is the word of God? Why do we believe that all men are sinful and separated from God? Why do we believe that all who die outside of Christ will be cast into hell? Why do we believe that Jesus is God in human flesh? How can a sinner be reconciled to God? Why did Jesus come into the world? What must a person do to be saved? The reason I'm asking you all these questions is because Jesus himself answered all those questions. Jesus answered them. Now, those are extremely important questions. But when people doubt the Christian faith, I've had discussions with my son at times. And he's become a skeptic. And he doubts some of these basic truths that I've just asked about. And I always find myself going back to the resurrection because if the resurrection is true what does that mean hey jesus knew what he was talking about jesus claimed that he was going to rise from the dead and then he did it if i can believe jesus when he makes the most incredible claim of all that he's going to rise from the dead after three days then i can believe him when he talks about any subject and jesus talked about all those subjects let's look at some of them If Jesus rose from the dead, number one, this means that Christianity is the only true religion. I know that a lot of people probably hate, (laughs) they hate the sound of this because it sounds arrogant, it sounds exclusivistic, but I can't help it. I can't help sounding that way because that is what the scriptures teach. Christianity is the only true faith. Think about it. Every other religion on the planet, they may have a founder, they may have a leader, but they're in the grave today. None of those guys are alive from the dead. Buddha's not alive, he's in the grave. Confucius is in the grave. Muhammad is in the grave. Joseph Smith is in the grave. Talk about any religion, leader of any religion, they're still in the grave. Jesus Christ alone is risen from the dead. That ought to tell us something. Christianity is the truth. Number two, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, who did he claim to be? Do you remember when he was with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? The woman comes up to Jesus. This is in John four twenty-five, And she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. How much clearer can you get? I am the Messiah. I'm the one all the Jewish people have been looking for, the great coming one, the deliverer. I'm him. That's the claim of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but in John 8:58, he told the religious leaders, "Before Abraham was born, I am." Now, you know where I'm getting that, right? I am. Where does that come from? Exodus 3, Moses goes to the burning bush. Someone from the bush starts speaking to him. He says, go deliver my people. And Moses says, well, they're never going to believe me. Who will I tell them has sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Jesus took the divine name. We translate the I am as Jehovah or Yahweh. He took the, the name of Jehovah or Yahweh on himself before Abraham was even born. He didn't say I was. I am. I am the eternal God. So when anybody says to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, take him to John 8, 58. What else, how else can you make sense out of that passage? Not only that, but in Luke chapter 22, which we just read a few weeks back, in verse 70, they're putting Jesus on the witness stand, and they said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Son of God. And he claims to be Jehovah. He claims to be the I Am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Now, if I can believe Jesus when he speaks about the fact that he's going to be raised from the dead, and then it happens, I think I can believe him when he tells us who he is. Number three, this teaches us that all men are sinful, because that's what Jesus taught. In Matthew 7, verse 11, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? If you then, being evil. That was Jesus' understanding of the nature of man. He's evil. (laughs) He says in another place, when he's talking with the rich young ruler, he he says, There is no one good but God alone. There's Jesus' assessment of the human race. Nobody's good, all are evil. Number four, if I can believe Jesus, then it means that Jesus is the only way to God. I know it's popular to believe that all roads lead to God. As long as you're sincere, you'll make it. How, How many times have we heard that? Our Hindu friends believe all roads lead to God. You just need to be sincere about whatever road it is you're traveling. Jesus didn't believe that. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Pretty exclusivistic claims, isn't it? He doesn't say, well, you can come through me, but if you want, you can go through Confucius. You can go through Muhammad. It doesn't make any difference. He says, no, you've got to go through me. It's the only way. John 14, 6. Number five. It means that all those who do not believe in Jesus will perish in hell because Jesus taught that. Those are the words of Christ. Matthew 25, verse 41 and verse 46. I'll read those to you. Matthew twenty-five, forty-one. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those are words from the lips of Jesus. Do you think you can believe Jesus when he speaks about heaven and hell? I think we can. I think we can. Number six, this means that Jesus was sent by the Father into the world to die for sinners. Jesus explains why he came on multiple occasions. In Matthew 20, verse 28, he said, the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to give his life. He came to give his life as a ransom price to redeem or to buy back many people. In Matthew 26 and verse 28, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, "This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins." Again, my blood is going to be poured out why? For the forgiveness of sins. And then in Luke 19:10, he says, "The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost." So Jesus was very clear about why he came. He came into the world to seek and save the lost. How is he going to do that? By pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of many. He's not coming to be served. He's coming to serve and give his life a ransom, a ransom price to redeem and save many people. And number seven, this means we must repent and believe in order to be saved because that's what Jesus taught. Luke 13.3, he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish repentance is not optional to get into heaven repentance is not optional to be saved you cannot be saved unless you repent contrary to what many easy believism evangelical teachers say today jesus tells us differently you will perish if you don't repent he says in john 3 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and in Luke 24 verses 46 and 47. He said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus was very clear. Repentance and faith are essential. If a person is to be saved, And just as an aside, here's another one that we can know for sure. We can know that the Bible is the very word of God. Because Jesus tells us in John 10, I think it's verse 30, that the scriptures cannot be broken. He says in Matthew uh, 5, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until all are accomplished. So if Jesus claimed that he was going to rise from the dead and then he does it, you can believe that the Bible is the word of God. Christianity is the only true religion. He is who he claimed to be, which is God in human flesh. All men are sinful. All those who don't believe in Jesus will perish in hell. Jesus was sent to die to save sinners and that individuals must repent and believe the gospel in order to be saved. So you have all of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity are wrapped up in the resurrection. The resurrection has gone. You don't have anything. You don't have anything. You have no hope. You're headed for an eternal hell without the resurrection. That's how important it is. So, believer, Christian today, if there's any doubt left in your mind about whether Jesus rose, I pray, I hope, that our time in the Word today will dispel that and give you solid footing to have an anchor, to be fully convinced about His resurrection from the dead. And if anybody ever tries to shake your faith, if you ever go to University and the professor tries to just belittle Christians as though they're morons or something. Go back to what we talked about today. Is Jesus risen or not? If he is, the professor's the moron, not you. <laughs> because Jesus was telling the truth about all those things that he said. And if you're not saved today, I hope that you'll consider the claims of Scripture. If Jesus is risen, that means that what he did on that cross Two thousand years ago is enough for you. That he can save you. All by himself. All you need to do is receive the gift that he offers. Believe. Turn away from the old life and embrace the new life. That's what, that's what conversion is. And if you are not saved today, turn from the old life. Turn from whatever sins God has shown you, convicted you of. Turn to Jesus Christ and he'll save you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that we have a Savior who's risen. What a joy that is, Lord, to know that he's not dead, he's alive, and we can interact with him and know him, walk with him on a daily basis. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being in our life every day. We praise and thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, amen.